Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The Midlands Graduate School and the Foundations of Computer Science provides an intensive course of lectures on the mathematical foundations of computing. It is a collaboration between researchers at the University of Birmingham, Leicester, Nottingham, and Sheffield, and has run annually since 1999. The lectures are aimed at PhD students, typically in their first or second year of study, but the school is open to anyone who is interested and has increasingly seen participation from industry, for example. They welcome participants from all over the world. MGS 2018 is going to be held in Nottingham, UK on the 9th and the 13th of April, hosted by the School of Computer Science, the University of Nottingham. Eight courses are to be given, three introductory ones, and five advanced. The students participate in all the introductory courses and choose additional options from the advanced courses. For more information, visit www.functionalgeekery.com slash MGS 2018. Detroit Day of Functional will be taking place Saturday, April 14th in Pontiac, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Detroit Day of Functional is a day to chat functional programming and how we can build better software using the ideas we get from Functional. They are currently planning to have lunch provided by Slow's Barbecue, and each attendee will get a t-shirt as well. For more information and to register, visit www.functionalgeekery.com slash DetroitFP2018. Alexa Conf EU will be taking place April 16th and 17th in Warsaw, Poland. Check out all the Alexa talks at ElixirConf EU, the premier Alexa conference in Europe. Early bird tickets are available, and tickets for the day of training as well on April 18th. For more information and to register, visit www.elixirconf.eu. BuzzConf will take place Tuesday, 26th of April, with workshops on Friday, April 27th in Buenos Aires, Argentina. BuzzConf is a conference by developers for developers that explores the new horizons in computer science such as functional programming, distributed systems, big data, machine learning, and other interdisciplinary areas and brings them to a bigger audience. For more information and register, visit buzzconf.org. Codebeam STO, previously the Erlang User Conference, celebrates 20 years of Erlang being made open source and is the only conference in Europe bringing the Erlang and Elixir communities together. Some speakers are already announced and called for talks that have been extended until Friday. More details on the website at codesync.global. Codebeam STO will be taking place the 31st of May through the 1st of June, and early bird tickets are available. Monadic Party is a five-day-long Haskell summer school in Poznan, Poland, taking place June 11th through the 15th. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from basic concepts, and the other track is for people already familiar with the language and will present a selection of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moronuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, the co-author of an upcoming Joy of Haskell, a GHC contributor, Christoph Guguleski, Carter Schoenwald, Marcin Semultuski, and Michal Kavalitz. They have an open call for speakers and are looking for people who want to lead a series of lectures or workshops. Check them out at monadic.party. The International Conference on Functional Programming 2018 will be taking place September 23rd through the 29th in St. Louis, Missouri. ICFP is an annual programming language conference. It is sponsored by the Association for Computing Machinery under the aegis of the ACM Special Interest Group on Programming Languages, SIGPLAN. For more information, see the general IFCP website. And this year, IFCP is co-located with StrangeLoop. And the 2018 ICFP programming contest will be Friday, July 20th through Monday, July 23rd. 
Strange Loop 2018 will be taking place on September 27th and 28th, with a pre-conference day on the 26th in St. Louis, Missouri. Their conference presentations opens April 9th, so to make sure to visit their website for more information and to keep up to date at www.thestrangeloop.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Claudia Dopioslash. Claudia, welcome back. Hi. Would you mind giving a little bit of background for those who haven't heard the previous episode? And we'll make sure to refer them to episode 42 for the full background. But can you give a brief little recap of who you are for anybody who might not have heard that episode? So I'm a functional programmer and a game developer. I seem to be doing both alternatively. And I was kind of hoping to do functional programming in game development. But so far, that hasn't really happened. So I've been doing, in the past, I've been doing Clojure, Elm, PureScript, and some other functional languages. And on the game development side, that's mainly Unity and shader programming, especially. And you might have seen my talks around Europe on PureScript and Elm, mainly, and some Erlang. And so I've been seeing your talks, Twitter account, a bunch of other posts come through. So just wanted to catch you up because you've been pervasive and wanted to catch up and see how it's been because when we had you on, you were playing with a lot of stuff, as you said. We got in the show notes that you were talking about some Idris and some list-flavored Erlang and Haskell and some of these other ideas. And so I wanted to just catch up and see what you've been up to since you've been doing more and more with, you got the Elm and PureScript stuff, as you mentioned. It looks like you're doing a little bit of rust. So just wanted to catch up. And last we left off, you were kind of doing some Elm, I believe. So what have you been up to in the meantime? So I worked full-time in Elm for a few months after that. We were making a visual ID for a, lang- a visual language in Elm. And then, you know, the version 0.17 of Elm happened. And that was when they got rid of functional reactive programming which was a big problem for us because we were using the functional reactive programming parts a lot. So it was all based on that because originally the company director wanted to use Elm because of similarities to Erlang, such as the mailboxes and general, you know, functional reactive programming is quite similar to Erlang in many ways. So he really wanted to use that, but then they got rid of it. So we were, you know, at a crossroad. Do we port it to the new version of Elm? But that was, you know, it was a bit complicated. It wasn't obvious how to do that. We might have been able to or not. The other option was to move to another language. So we ended up rebuilding the project in PureScript, which was interesting. So PureScript at the time was 
it wasn't quite as popular as it is now. It, I think it's been growing a lot and it wasn't quite as ready as it is now. But PureScript is very powerful and there is a framework for PureScript which is called Allergen, which is also very powerful. So they have this framework uh, which is used by one company and they I, I think they have four or five programmers full-time on things regarding this framework. So maybe they do a project and then they work a bit on this frame. I don't know exactly how it works, but there are a bunch of people doing it, making it, and that keeps the framework going. And it, it was really quite, it's its quite complex. And it, it was, at the time, it was a bit hard to get into. I think now they simplified it a bit. But it's also very, very powerful. And especially if you hate boilerplate code, then halogen is very good for that. It really tries to get rid of all the boilerplate. So we rewrote the project with PureScript, but then there wasn't really any, you know, the project didn't really go any further. So we ended up focusing on GRISP, really. So GRISP is um, an embedded board which runs the Erlang VM. So it's basically the Erlang VM on the bare metal. There is an operating system which is OpenRTMS, I think, and you can just, it's basically a library and you link to it and it makes the Erlang VM you know, an operating, everything, it's an operating system, basically, just linked to the Erlang VM. So you can run your code, your Erlang code, and even your Elixir code, or even your LFE code, really on the on the machine. So it sort of nerves on steroids, I think that could be a good description. And so we had a bunch of, you know, we make that board, uh, Persisting GmbH makes that board, and we wanted to make a few projects so the people could see what it can do. And so at Lambda Days, we showed a home automation project. And my part was mainly making the D3 visualizations front end for it, really, because the D3 code itself was made by my colleague, Amelia. And she is a specialist in SVG and CSS and also D3. So she made most of the D3 code. And then I just did the glue, the JavaScript glue to glue the, you know, the web sockets on the Erlang side and the D3 code. And so we showed this home automation application and we had a bunch of sensors. So an home automation application is basically, you mean, uh, to automate your house. So we had a bunch of temperature sensors and we could connect them with a really long cable to, to the grease board. And also we had, you know, we had the grease board connected to not to a proper plug, but with a battery, so we could bring it around the room. And so people would connect the sensors and then the temperatures would show up on the big screen with the visualization. And it did some other stuff, like you could connect to the console, to the shell, to the Erlang shell and change the code as it was running on the on the device. So that for anyone who's interested, there should be a video of the talk at Lambda Days this year. And Meanwhile, while I was doing this, I also was writing a book about shader programming. And shader programming, there is you know, a new development, which is physically based shading, meaning that it's more based on the physics of light rather than, as it used to be, games are really just you know, a bunch of artists trying to make things as realistic as possible, but without really thinking about what the physics of light are. And, but there is, with this new development, you connect the physics of light with the rendering code. So that's that's a whole bunch of stuff about that. And I put it in, in the book. And that was last year and it was out this January. 
depending on when you are uh, or where you are, uh, either January or last December. And they also made a plural site course about shaders in Unity, which is out now. I think it's been out since last week. So a lot of shaders as well. That sounds like a great recap, and I saw you've been busy, so that's what I, I want to kind of refresh on everything you've been on and just dig into some of those lessons. So you mentioned the Elm and PureScript move. Yes. And you said you were still doing a little bit of PureScript for a while during yeah. that transition. Looking at both Elm, I've played with a little bit of PureScript, and I've played with some Elm and done a project or two in Elm. So a little bit more experience with Elm. But how did you find the difference in PureScript and Elm? Because they're both, take the stance on purity, they both got the nice type systems. Elm, a little bit more OCaml-ish is my understanding, versus the Haskell stuff that you get PureScript and essentially some of Haskell evolved. But how did you find the difference between Elm and PureScript? And if you were to pick up some more UI stuff, when would you pick each one depending on what use cases you would be doing or their relative strengths and weaknesses? So I think it depends very much on the person writing the code because, you know, Elm is a bit simpler as in, you know, the whole design principle of Elm is to be as simple as possible. But that also means that you're going to, you know, so you've got less fancy types. The types are easier to get your, to wrap your head around, but you also get a lot more repetition compared to pure script. And one thing to note is that the Elm architecture is not quite the same as Halogen. The Elm architecture really works around the concept of components. So you, you're supposed to, I'm not exactly, I don't know exactly what you're supposed to do about your components, but I think they exist, but they're not official, right? They're not in a type or anything. But in PureScript, Halogen, because there are, um, there are now many frameworks in PureScript, so it's quite hard to, to keep up with them. But in Halogen, you have types for components and they are they fit in all quite nicely. But they get really complicated. So I think if you're familiar with Haskell-like types and you like your fancy types quite a lot, then you get a lot of... There is no ceiling in PureScript. You can just go and go and go and make your types fancier and fancier. And, you know, the PureScript community is very advanced, I think. Possibly, you know, in average, it's even more advanced for this kind of stuff than the average in the Haskell community. They very much know their, their Haskell stuff. So they tend to bring out the big guns and, you know, put lenses everywhere and use very complex types, which is fine if you're used to them, but it does take a while to get up to speed. But on the other hand, then you no boy, almost no boilerplate them. I mean, there's always going to be some boilerplate, but the stuff you can do with PureScript and Halogen without repeating yourself is really quite impressive. For Elm, I think if you come from, I don't know, from stuff like ML or even from JavaScript, it's much friendlier. And I think one one good thing about Helm, you know, if you have maybe a team of a few people and not everyone is at the same place in the functional programming learning curve, I think Helm is quite useful for that because there are only there are few things that any piece of code can be. So it's quite easy to track things back and you almost never will be confused by something someone else did. But there, there can be quite a bit of boilerplate. I mean, the price to pay for that is boilerplate. With PureSkit, you got 
fancier types, uh, maybe harder to wrap your eyes around, but quite powerful. And on the Elm side, you got more simplicity and you don't get lost as much, but then you do have to repeat yourself quite a bit. And I think at some point someone even made a boilerplate making program, just filling your boilerplate for you. And I've played with Elm, done some projects in it. Pointed a couple of coworkers. We were doing some Reacts and Redux in JavaScript at work, and kind of pointed them to Elm. So I understand the approachability of that, and the the idea of the Elm architecture has kind of spread through. Not that it's unique, but it becomes the site of a lot of people cribbing those ideas. That you got Redux and React, and a couple of these things all combined together, kind of mimic that Elm architecture. And I've heard of Halogen and PureScript, but I I haven't played with it at all to know what that programming model is in PureScript. So what does Halogen bring and how do you does one work with generally programming models when you're doing the UI and the front end in JavaScript with PureScript? What does that feel like at a high level since Halogen seems to be one of the popular frameworks? So since PureScript doesn't give you an architecture like Elm does, so Elm is very, you know, restricted. You can only do the things that way. While PureScript is, you can do anything. So there are many frameworks and many of them wrap React. I think there is a framework by Phil Freeman, the author of PureScript, which wraps React and uses lenses. And there is also a framework you can pile on top of Allergen to make it behave like the Elm architecture. I think it's called Spark. So if you're if you're familiar with it, you can probably, you know, try to do that. Try to use Spark and Allergen in a way that's familiar to you. But I never tried it, so I'm not sure it will work out that way. Allergen, I mean, it's not reactive. So it's not reactive either. It's, I think it's just a nice... A nice way to organize things. It's got types for components. It's got types for uh, many different things. And it's everything tends to slot together nicely once you make it work. I don't even know if it's, you know, like a proper style of... No, I wouldn't know. Yeah, they just say declarative and type safe. And one of the reasons I was wondering was because it still takes that purity aspect and makes the side effects explicit. So I didn't know if there was any common patterns that were specific to things like that with the UI, as opposed to if you're going and writing Haskell in a pure mode, where your side effects might be more limited in nature, as opposed to developing on a UI where you have a bunch of not just HTTP post requests, but interactions with the UI and other DOM events and the like. So I didn't know... Right. Kind of at a high level, how some of that was structured, whereas um architecture gives an easy summary, easy summary, or maybe not easy, but it, there can be an elevator pitch for the Elm architecture. I didn't know if there was the same elevator pitch for halogen at a high level. Well, it still reads quite similarly. It's just the stuff behind the scenes that's different. So technically, what halogen has is a free monad during the update. What in Elm will be the update? Here it's called evil. Yeah, you get you get the various monads, and PureScript works a bit differently with monads because it used to have row types. I think they might have gotten rid of them by now. I'm not I'm not sure what they did to be honest, because I haven't done anything with it for a few months now. 
But you have the monads, you have a way to impile those monads together through this free monad that's given to you during the update. And it still sort of works like the Elm architecture because you still have the rendering part, you still have sort of the actions part, which I think actions are now called messages in Elm. So the messages slash action part is called querying in PureScript. But you can be very specific about what your child component is doing. Well, so I don't think I ever, <laughs> you know, wrapped my head around it enough to just explain it simply. There is a guide for Allogen on documentation on the on the repository, and I, I would suggest everyone to just go work through that guide. But as the basics, it's still somewhat similar to the Elm architecture because it's the Elm. I think the Elm architecture comes from basically trying to do everything in a pure way. So it makes sense that it would be fairly similar on that front. So you you need to have your actions, you need to have, you know, the stuff that happens, which is, I don't know, button pressed or whatever. And you need a way to update your state based on that. And you need a way to render that. And that's still the case in Allergen. You, still, you can still find all those things. Because unfortunately, I get swamped with a bunch of videos and at, keep adding them to my watch later queue. I haven't actually watched your Elm PureScript talk, sadly. Did you do those side-by-side -side and do a side-by-side -side evolution? And was Elm running side-by-side, -side, or was it kind of a pure transition over? No, it was just a straight port. Okay. So there wasn't one part of PureScript and one part of the app in... No, no, it was just a port. I think it would be fairly annoying set up because of Elm, really. Because... PureScript wouldn't really care, but to make Elm interoperate with anything, you need to use pods. So I think that would be annoying to do. And that's what I was wondering, because I've seen the stories of carving out certain pieces of your JavaScript app into Elm. And I've seen the same kind of thing of like, here's how you introduce PureScript into your existing JavaScript app. But I wasn't sure if there was a, uh, a story of, here's how you go from one to another and migrate across those languages. I think the easiest way to go about it is just, you know, look at the code. And since it's fairly similar, fairly similar, not totally similar, but you can sort of port the stuff relatively straightforwardly. And then you were doing some stuff, you mentioned the Grist project. Yes. Had a scheduling conflict, but it was going to try and have a call and I need to reach back out to him and try and get him actually on oh, right. about Grist. But would you mind giving a high-level overview of where GRISP fits in? You kind of said it was kind of like nerves on steroids in your view. And looking at the site, it looks like GRISP has its own hardware that it runs on. Yes. That's something special. So it's a special board and special ecosystem to be able to get the Erlang and Elixir and LFE and anything running on that beam running on that bare metal. Yes. So it's got a Wi-Fi. So it's got Wi-Fi built in so you can connect easily to your shell. It basically boots to an Erlang shell and you don't have, there is no Linux system around it. It's just the Erlang shell and the drivers, the drivers that you need for your sensors. So it's very direct. There's no fiddling with Unix and stuff like that. Well, you know, Per is the right person to talk about this because I've, I've interacted with it, but they haven't really used it directly. Suddenly, there's not that much that I can say that I'm sure is right 100%. Okay. And it was just more about getting a little bit of a tease if you were doing some of this integration. And 
you said you were kind of hooking up the Erlang side to the JavaScript side. Yes. What were you doing around there? Because I wasn't sure if that was more... It was plain WebSocket, really. So you were just using the basic Erlang web server and communicating over WebSockets to be able to coordinate this stuff? Yes. And that's what I was kind of getting at is you were doing this. I didn't know how much, if it was still basic standard Erlang or if there was other... No, no, it's, I think it's totally, totally standard Erlang. I think you can run anything on it, anything that runs in Erlang, you can run on it, as long as it doesn't depend on something external like having Linux. But yeah, I think you can run anything on it, and they're supposed to integrate it with Mix as well. So you should be able to install Elixir libraries, and you should have, I think you should already be able to install Erlang libraries quite easily, as you do normal. Yeah, and that's, that was kind of where I was wondering, is because it sounded vaguely reminiscent of the Erlang running on the Zen stuff, and I wasn't sure how much of that was. Yeah, no, that's completely unrelated. <laughs> yeah, well, writing the Erlang, how much of that stuff you were able to use or how much of that stuff you might have had to work around. Because if you're running it on bare metal without a Linux, I would imagine you're losing... They would have to redefine yes. certain things like files and there were certain features and functionality that may be redefined due to the hardware it's running on. But I didn't know if as you were writing this and doing this WebSocket stuff, if everything still seemed... Now for me, from my point of view of, you know, app developer, it I didn't see anything different. But everything is open source. You can actually go to the Grease repository on GitHub and you're going to be able to look at everything they have done. So there is a Grisp you know, organization on GitHub and it includes everything, the runtime library, the rebar plugin, all the tool chains, because when you build for Grisp, you need to get the tool chains on your machine because you're building for ARM and you need to build it in a certain way, which I think is all in the instructions. And they are trying to make it easier. They are putting a big effort into making releases and so people can just download the binary and start with it. And yeah, that's it's always interesting to see there's the details for what it takes to port certain VMs to and port a language to run on different hardware. And then there's the side of how well does the VM encapsulate that different hardware and in this case the different chipsets of the ARM versus the x86 architectures or whatever yeah and how much how much that changes from the application developer perspective that says yeah if i wanted to run this web server on a full-on linux board i could do that could put it on a raspberry pi could do it on my laptop could put it on a server versus there was really no change that if i wanted to run it on this risk board i could do the exact same thing other than i get access to these sensors now with drivers yeah forked OTP and they have forked I think the VM and I think after they've done all the work it should be fairly straightforward for everybody else I don't think it's going to require any changes really unless you rely on something that they haven't gotten around to yet but Pat is really the best person to ask about also you could ask Adam you know Adam from the company? I don't know that I do. We did the talk together at Lambda Days. You should also know about this stuff Okay. And again, I was do want to get them on. And some of that was just that view of just seeing how that is across from the programming side across different environments, if you had that experience. So you also mentioned you've been doing some going back to the game programming. 
last time we talked, you were doing uh, trying to do some closure stuff in Unity. Yes. That was piquing your interest. You referenced Elise Ward's Lean Pub book, The Game Programming in Haskell. You mentioned just Unity development just now. And then before the call, we also were talking about the, how some of the graphics programming mirrored the functionalness with doing pipeline transformations. What was your experience now that you've been going back and doing some more game programming of introducing some of the functional ideas into game programming? And have you found that sticking or not? And is it are you able to take F-sharp with Unity some? Are you still doing any of that closure in Unity? Or is it mainly just some of these functional concepts being applied where you can and where they fit? So when I started using Elm, I was looking to do game programming now. And that it didn't work out because they removed Reactive from the language. So that didn't end up being worth it because the Elm architecture really works well if you're doing a web application, but it doesn't, I don't think it works well if you're doing a serious game. I mean, if you're doing a game jam, that's fine. But if you're making proper games, then, you know, maybe thinking of making commercial games, that wouldn't really cut it. So I had to give up on using Elm for that. So I ended up going to Haskell and trying to check out the functional reactive stuff. But the big thing that the functional reactive community, the functional community is missing right now, any language, is that to get them some serious game developing in any language, you need many, many libraries. You need a lot of libraries. And I think that's the Rust community is doing this work now because at first, the game development story with Rust wasn't really good, to be honest. But the language has potential, so there's a lot of people who rally together and are making engines and libraries, all the building blocks you need to make games. And I think they are having a degree of success. I make the website Are We Game Yet, which is, I don't know if you know the pattern for Rust websites, but they have an Are We Web Yet and Are We ID Yet, so... They also keep, it's sort of a tiny database of the game libraries in Rust that are around. And I find that no one is really doing this work, this, you know, building, making the blocks, the building blocks for functional languages. So potentially you could make serious games in Haskell, you could make them in anything really, but you are faced with many years of work all by yourself. And that's not really, that doesn't help. And I think someone, I don't remember the name of the company, but there is a company that makes indie games on PC and they were using Haskell for one of their games and they gave up on that. I think they sort of encountered the same problem. But that is a big problem. Um, Closure in Unity, it's really nice if you're doing, you know, something that you don't need to ship on an iPhone or on a console. If you're making a PC game or if you're making a demo, or if you're making a game jam, then it's great and it's interactive and everything. But if you need to ship on an embedded device, it's I think it's actually, I don't know if it fixed the AOT problem, but yeah, it wasn't really viable for what I wanted to do. And F-sharp in Unity, well, the problem with Unity in general, using Unity with functional programming is that the engine itself, it's modifying state all over the place. Everywhere, everything, all the time is changing something, changing some state. And it's really hard to, you really have to stop everything and sync on things to make it work functionally. 
So it's it's really fighting against you. And I sort of gave up on it. I, every wow. once in a while, I think, oh, maybe I should get, you know, F-sharp going or something. But right now, I'd be happy if I got the reactive extensions going. That, that would be great already. There is a uni RX library is called for reactive extensions on Unity. Also because Unity was on an ancient version of the mono runtime for ages. I think now they ca- they caught up or they're catching up, but it wasn't really viable to use languages with advanced garbage collection on it. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a sad report. <laughs> so I, I didn't really find a way to make games with functional languages and still be able to ship a game that you can salt someone that's good enough for that. And also, I found out that I'm more interested in the rendering part rather, you know, than the game making part. So rendering is a quite interesting field on its own. So I ended up going deeper into that. And as we were saying earlier, when you render, you have, you know, we have a bunch of inputs and then you produce an output. It's, I think it's inherently functional problem, even data flow, if you want. And shader languages tend to have, they're very simple languages usually, even though shader making nowadays requires generating ridiculous numbers of shader variations because you need to support a lot of different GPUs, which have different capabilities so you need to generate shaders for all of them plus variations of shader for your own internal objectives so you, you could use a more advanced shader language and for a while i did fancy doing that but then you know i tried to get into semantic programming languages semantics and it's it's a very deep field so i sort of i didn't do it in the end and so what other places have you found if you're doing game programming, but you're still interested in the functional side that fits well? You kind of mentioned Rust, that Rust has potential. Yes. Just it needs more libraries, but are there any other places that you're looking that you say this is a fit for the functional, at least the functional ideas? Like you mentioned the shader and dealing with a pipeline and data transformation seems very functional. Data goes in, data comes out through the pipeline. What other places have you found that either has real potential soon or is the place where even if the potential is not fully there, that those ideas that you've found and you've learned from your years of functional programming fit well in thinking about game transformation? So definitely the render is the best place where to apply functional principles because it's inherently functional, as we said, and you... You just don't have to change state. Some people from games, which are AAA, so big companies' games, they are uh, making renders based on dependencies, based on graphs. And I never, I haven't so far looked into that properly. But that sounds something that could very much be a functional, turn out to be very, very functional. And Rust, I think, is a really good language for trying to use functional concepts inside games. And it's not quite there yet for the libraries, but it's going to get there, possibly in a year or two. It's going to get there. People are already starting to deploy it on PlayStation 4, so it's getting some serious use out there. And you can use functional programming concepts in Rust. If you're looking for performance, you're going to end up breaking them 
at least inside Rust is a bit funny, I guess, because people who come from games and from C++, they are confused by the fact that it's not object-oriented. So they, they see that and they are confused, but then they keep using it because it's powerful and you don't have as many memory errors problems with Rust. It tends to, you know, use Rust and you can say, almost as Haskell people say, if it compiles, it runs. It tends to do that. So people coming from C++, maybe they are confused. People coming from game development are a bit confused, but then they get to it and they start using it. And I think from the functional programming side as well, people used to functional programming come to Rust and then they end up having to manage their own memory and then it's maybe confusing and they may be frustrated because they don't have higher kind of data types and they miss some things from functional programming, but then they end up being quite happy after you know a time of getting used to things. So it's a sort of a strange hybrid of everything. And I haven't done as much Rust as I wanted to yet. So I say this from, I'm a bit of a beginner with Rust, but I hope to get... I wanted to write a ray tracer in Rust, so I hope to get there at some point, to get to the point that I can do that. And then I think the reactive concepts, in it, I think there's still potential in them, but I haven't been able to test out this theory because you need to make an engine basically all using these principles. Otherwise, your engine is going to fight with you at every turn, just like Unity does. So I'm not sure if anyone went the whole way and actually implemented a game component system, like an entity component system in some reactive language or library. There was one in Haskell, but I don't think anyone made much with it, to be honest. I think it was called Helm. Yeah, I'd like to see someone do that. I might be able to get to get to that at some point. There are a few reactive libraries which happen to be sort of reactive, functional reactive in Rust. So I think it's possible. I just need time, really. And another thing that I thought was interesting was using Erlang for the entities in games. Like in games, entity component systems are popular because you're going to end up having many, many entities, which can be, you know, non-player characters or, I don't know, bullets or anything really, anything that you need to be existing independently in a game. And I thought that would be uh, a nice experiment to do in Erlang to make an entity component system in Erlang or something like that. You know, it doesn't need to be exactly the same thing, but something that used the amazing capabilities of Erlang. And uh, Robert Verding did some of that in his demo. I think it was called Mesh 2015. I think it was synchronizing game components, the name of the talk or something like that. So he already explored that to an extent. So that would be an interesting way to go. Time. Time is always the limit. <laughs> I don't have time to do try everything. So you started talking about the game loop and how some of that uses that graph of changes that will need to, would need to be done. And I've heard other people come back out. And when I said the Elm architecture is not anything necessarily new, a lot of people said, yeah, the Elm architecture fits in a lot with the well, maybe not the direct rendering aspect, but the aspect of the game loop where the game loop at a high level is take input, do calculations, render next frame, repeat until game over. Yes, but one problem with that is that in the Elm architecture, you sort of have this big bottleneck with, what do they call them now, messages? 
I think they call them messages now. So you have to declare an action, a message for anything that you want the game to do. And it's, you know, you can have, if you think of a game such as The Witcher, Horizon Zero Dawn, you can have thousands of different non-player characters that do different things. There are even different species. There are a lot of monsters and each of them has got their own set of actions on top of the normal actions. I think it would be a mess. I mean, I don't know if they found a new way to deal with the proliferation of code in the update method in Elm, but when I was doing Elm, your update function or file tended to get really big. And I can't imagine being able to program an open world game. And many games nowadays tend to be open world because it's very popular. With that kind of structure, I think it's good. people are going to be crazy. Your type, your action types are get, get, gonna get crazy. So I see the similarity, but I don't think it necessarily means that it's good for games. Yeah, and it was just more about those ideas kind of cross pollinating, and the fact of you had David Nolan with his early stuff with Ohm talking about which React cribbed, and then I believe Elm kind of cribbed as well. Mm where they all kind of feed back and forth with what part of the graph of rendering was the part that actually changed because now we get immutable. And it's interesting to hear that that's kind of feeding back more popular in the games. And I've heard some of the old games with very limited memory did all that stuff because mm-hmm. they didn't want to take advantage of the memory, but how these ideas are kind of cross pollinating back and forth and taking the idea from one place, being improved in one of the other domains, feeding back in and that little feedback cycle of here's the good ideas kind of going back and forth and being built and expanded on and modified and experimented with. And then that cycle just happening back and forth sounds very interesting. Yeah. And everyone forgets where the idea came from in the first place. So you can't actually trace them easily. They sort of just happen to cross communities and then get lost, somewhat lost, the origin of it. And so you mentioned wanting to do some Rust some more in the future. We're getting close to our time, but I do got a couple questions along what excites you in the future. What are you looking forward? What interests you that you want to play more with? And then along with that, we'll get there. But are there any other things that you think is worth bringing up and discussing or making known that you have thought of? As we've been discussing in this episode, is there anything else that's kind of popped up in your interest that, or is on your radar for things that are you want to share with the audience? So I'm definitely interested in learning more Rust and trying to do game development, but sort of functional with it and see where, you know, where the line is, how far you can bring it without getting entangled or ruining the performance or stuff like that. Just sort of finding how much you can be functional in a language like Rust, which it cooperates. It, it does. It is rather functional, and it, it shouldn't fight against you. So I'm looking forward to find that out, and I would really like to do some experiments with entity component systems in Erlang. And entity component systems are just a very typical game concept. I don't think I've ever saw them anywhere else, but. Unit implements a sort of entity component system. And I don't know, is it something you heard about, entity component systems? I think I've heard of it through some other podcasts. I want to say it might have been a number of years ago. I think it might have been Katie McCaffrey 
talking with Scott Hanselman on Hanselman. It's talking about some of that Orleans framework being used as the back of some of those entity relationships and tracking Mm -hmm. in the Halo games where they were using some of this stuff, but more at the massive multiplayer stuff happening in the background and some of that coordination. But I don't know about at an individual level, like in my computer, that I've heard of that. They are very common when you're making games. You're going to encounter them everywhere. Like Unity has one, and there are a few libraries in Rust which implements different entity component systems. So it's pretty common, but it's hard to explain without going through all the details of it because it's, yeah, I don't think it's very used outside of games. But yeah, I would like to make, to try to make an entity component system in Erlang and see how that works because I think that's got a lot of potential. Is that one of those and... I might have heard of it in different terms, but is that the promise of 15, 20 years ago of object-oriented programming <laughs> where every single thing in your game was an object and it would have its own state and its yeah, own... Yeah, it turned out that was pretty terrible. <laughs> so that, that didn't really work. So they ended up having entity component systems, which are sort of... They're, they're, they're a strange concept. I don't know if it would... They're not really object-oriented. They're a little bit, but they're not even functional. So they're, they're their own little universe. But I never implemented one. I only used someone else's entity component system. So I'm not sure behind the scene what they look like. And then is there anything else that's interesting you? Any other languages that are on your radar? Any other concepts, even if you know them, that you're, you mentioned functional reactive programming and trying to get some of that in with a uh, game system of Rust. What's on your radar for things that would interest you given you had all this time that you're like, the limiting factor is time. What are some of those things that interest you that you'd like to see more of? And maybe if people have played with this, reach out to you and say, hey, I've seen this or just what are some of those other things that are on your radar that's exciting you at this point? I would like to get to do some Idris again. Because I haven't really had time to get any more. I started the book and then I, I got too busy. And also I would like to get a proper knowledge of Rust. But nowadays I am very interested in rendering concepts. Like now, like at this moment, there is the GDC, the Game Developer Conference running in, I think it's in San Francisco, possibly. And uh, yesterday, I think Microsoft and NVIDIA announced ray tracing support inside the GPU. So I would be very interested to try that out because no, rendering we normally do, it's not it's a, a lot of shortcuts and we don't get to do ray tracing, which would make, you know, making rendering easier because it would be all the same rather than having to implement every little bit. Like you have to implement reflections separately, you have to implement roughness of the material separately. Like if you do ray tracing, it's all, you solve everything together, basically. So I'm very interested in trying that out. <laughs> And Vulkan, I'd like to try out Vulkan, the new graphics API, which I haven't, there is a library for Rust, so at some point I'll just try out that. And the rest of the stuff I want to do is related to translating physics of light into <laughs> images. <laughs> like, I'd like to try making a spectral ray tracer, because the ray tracers usually don't don't consider light at the spectral level normally. Some do. So I'd like to try that out as well, to make one as well. And it's always just interesting to see what things are putting on the radar. And you mentioned Idris, and you mentioned Idris previously. 
what's pulling you back to still want to work with Idris? Were there certain things you found doing the Elm, doing the Pure Script, doing whatever Haskell you did or any of these other languages that makes Idris especially appealing to you? I think my, you know, my main complaint with the Haskell type languages is that I don't like modern transformers. I got to modern transformers and I got free monads, but I thought it would make more sense. But then, you know, modern transformers feel like the sort of stuff you find in object-oriented programming languages, the patterns that you need because you haven't found a better solution yet. And I know free monads are part of the solution, but I'm not quite convinced. I think for what I did of Idris, I think the Idris model makes more sense. And, you know, I'm not an expert on any of this because I I didn't go that deep. But it feels like things in Idris make more sense than in Haskell for me. Probably because it, of the dependent types and it just, you know, it absorbs some of the complexity in the type system rather than having to work around things. Yeah, for me, it was a bit of a... I started Haskell and PureScript quite enthusiastic, but for me, it got to the point of diminishing returns at Mon and Transformers. I just don't like how that works. Yeah, so I hope Idris will show me a way to do the same things, but that makes more sense to me. But I don't really have an application for Idris at the moment, so I'm not doing anything with it. When I'll have some free time, I'll, I'll do some Idris. I'll go on with the book. So as we start wrapping up then, you've been giving a lot of presentations. Do you have any other appearances coming on your radar that you know about and want to tease any upcoming topics or talks or just things that you're thinking about that might be worth even creating a submission for a CFP in the future that's got you interested or anything that you got out, any other places that you're going or conferences that you're going to either as an attendee or hoping for as a speaker, even if you don't have the topic quite solidified yet, or you have a couple of topics that you're interested in? So I've been meaning to make more talks about things relating to game development, because most of my talks are about functional programming and not so many are about game development, like one, maybe two. So I wanted to make a talk about procedural modeling. Actually, lately, I've taken up a program that's called Houdini, and in Houdini, you can pretty much procedural model your way through everything. So you're, it's just programming, just you have a lot of functionality given to you. And it's pretty amazing what you can do. And there was a talk at the last Code Mesh about procedural modeling with, not with Udini, but with Rhino. And uh, that's a program they use for architecture. So in general, procedural, making procedural arts, what they call creative coding, I guess, procedural modeling, creative coding, that kind of stuff. I started to be interested in that. And I think I'd like to make an introduction for people who may not be familiar with this kind of program to make images, pretty much, basically. So I'd like to make something like, to make a talk about that. And I'd probably like to make a talk about physically based shading because that's my main thing at the moment. And that might even be for artists, actually, for game artists how to use the physical concept, knowing enough physics so you can cooperate with the engine, with the renderer, rather than go against it. But I think the procedural modeling and procedural art stuff is really interesting, so I'd like to explore more of that. 
I may or may not have a talk this year, but I haven't really decided yet. It's all, you know, cooking up in my mind. At some point, it will be ready. <laughs> and then is there anything you want to let the audience know about? Any projects you're involved with or anything, projects you're interested in that you think, you mentioned some of the Sudini stuff. You mentioned Rust. You mentioned your, are we gaming at for Rust and yes. games? Is there anything that you want to either promote something that you see other people doing, projects you're working on yourself, or just any other general thing you want the audience to know about, even if it's a question or request of, has anybody seen this that you want to ask of the audience? Right. Well, I have a book out, so I'll, I'll put in a word for my book, which is Physically Based Shading, Shader Development in Unity. I don't know what's the overlap, to be honest, but you know, it's a thing that exists. And what else? Grisp. I think it's very interesting for anyone who is interested in using Erlang on embedded boards. I think it's an, some because people are used to having nerves, but I think Grisp potentially is much more direct than nerves. You you just have to grow through less hoops, I think. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, take a look at that. And yeah, I think I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I'm sure there is, but I can't think of anything. Okay. And I don't know from Unity specifically, but there does seem to be a strong subgroup of people that I've talked to and talked with in on the podcast and in general that seem to be interested in the game programming as it seems like a fair amount of people that is what got them interested in computers to begin with and that's just the general side project that they enjoy doing is there seems to be a strong contingent about games so could be a bigger subpopulation than we might <laughs> think of that that actually cross over so so what are the best places for people to find you online if they'd like to follow along and keep up to date with what you're up to? So I have two accounts on Twitter. One is Vashetri. <laughs> one is Doppio Slash, which is my main one, which used to be all functional programming, but I'm afraid I took a turn for graphics programming lately. And then I have Lambda Cat, which is my functional programming account, which is much neglected, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> and I have ShaderCat, which I tweet a lot about, where I, I mainly retweet cool things about graphics programming that I find around. So that's where most of my stuff is. I, I'm going to talk about it on Twitter, on one of those accounts. And then I have a website, which is www.dotbillslash.com, and that's just a general summary. And I am supposed to update the ShaderCut website, which is www.shadercut.com. But I really hate doing HTML, so I'll get around to that at some point. And that is supposed to be a bit of a summary about all my graphics programming stuff. And I should also update Lambda Cat, but I'm afraid that's even farther down the line. So at some point, I'll get to that. And yeah, that's probably it. And we'll get those links included in the show notes. And if you have any other places you think of in the near future, we can get those added into the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Claudia, for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure catching up with you and getting some more details. Because as I said, I've seen you pervasive blog and tweet and do a bunch of talks. But sadly, the talks mainly go to the watch later column. <laughs> versus being able to sit down and actually pay attention to a talk and watch the slides and watch the presentations versus just 
have some audio in the background, which doesn't always work well when it's designed to be a presentation at a conference. So thanks for taking your time and catching me up on what you've been going on and sharing your experiences. So we'll have to get you on in the future as you continue to evolve and play and see if you actually get any progress on the functional reactive game engines or your entity component things and take some of that Erlang ideas and what lessons you've got, or even if you go back into Idris or whatever you wind up doing. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.